0: Okay, before we get started this morning, welcome to week two of Biblical Theology of Grief. Glad to see many of you made it back for the second week. Uh, That's a good thing. Uh, If you did not get the handout to take some notes, uh, we will come around and pass these out. Anybody need one of these? Everybody's got one? Well, that was easy enough. Anybody still in need of a bookmark with the overview of each week? Done. Excellent. All right. That is beautiful. If you just didn't want to raise your hand, you can grab one later and they are available to you. Let's get started with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you now and God, we are mindful that we are in so much need of you. God, we are people who are are weak. We are people who have minds that run to and fro so quickly. We are people that are susceptible to our own emotions, dragging us to places we don't want to go. And yet we know you are a God who is able, a God who is able to help us stand firm a God who is able to comfort us in our afflictions. God, we gather together this morning so that we can glean from your word. God, we pray that you would inform our minds, that you'd minister to our hearts, and that you'd bend our wills towards your will. Father, we pray that you would do all this for our good, and for your great name's sake. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Continuing on from last week, this morning, if you have your handout, you'll see this morning is grief expressed, responding to the sufferings we endure. Now, as you read through your Bible, you will quickly realize, especially reading through the Old Testament, that the Bible is peppered with stories of sufferings. These stories are of actual people, real people, and these people are going through real pain. The the stories from these sufferings, they're, they're sufferings that come from all types of things like disease. I'm looking around at our audience and yes, I could probably say it. Sufferings that come from things like rape, and murder, and torture, and famine. Sufferings that come from betrayal, injustice. Sufferings that come from various forms of violence. And sufferings that come from the death of others. I want to read you a quote as we get started this morning from a book by Paul David Tripp called Suffering. Dr. Tripp writes this, he says, Suffering is never abstract, theoretical, or impersonal. Suffering is real, tangible, personal, and specific. The Bible never presents suffering as an idea or a concept, but puts it before us in the blood and guts drama of real human experiences. Scripture never looks down on the sufferer. It never mocks his pain. It never turns a deaf ear to his cries, and it never condemns him for his struggle. It presents to the sufferer a God who understands, who cares, who invites us to come to him for help, and who promises one day to end all suffering of any kind once and forever." By the way, that book I would recommend as a read, if you like to read, Suffering by Paul David Tripp. But not only really does Dr. Tripp write this, but we also see the same thing recorded in Scripture. For example, the reality of pain and suffering. Anybody here read the Psalms? A majority of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. It has been argued exactly how many of those, some say 62, some say all the way up to 67, somewhere in the 60s, are psalms of lament. That means it's roughly about 44% of the book of psalms are crying out to God in sorrow. We can be informed by scripture that God deeply cares about our pain and about our suffering. In the midst of deep suffering, we can forget that. In the midst of great grief, we can think that God doesn't care. Psalm 56.8, David writes this. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? In the midst of his despair, he knew that God cared, that God was still present, that God was still engaged in the midst of it. But if you are here this morning and have gone through the crucible of great grief, you know in that darkness, sometimes it's hard to see how God cares. And then we try to make sense of why are we going through this? Why would God allow this to happen? And how am I supposed to respond to this suffering? And sadly, rather than pressing into the scriptures, many professing believers begin to press into secular psychology to help them understand grief. And so I'm gonna give you a name of one psychiatrist who's become very famous. She is Swiss-born, her name is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She did this long-term study of looking at those who were diagnosed with a terminal illness. And her work was to study how they would respond to the diagnosis. Just hearing that they had a diagnosis of this terminal illness. Some of you already know what came out of that. And some of you are aware of these things because we've looked into secular psychology rather than the scriptures. And what came out of that was the five stages of grief. Some of you may know those, some of you may have even told somebody else about them, some of you may have tried to encourage somebody through those, so these are the five stages. It's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. It's important for us to note the exact context of her observations. It was specifically, like I said, for those who were informed that they, were, they had a terminal illness. It was to see how they would respond. It is not an observation of all forms of grief. And as we'll look at this morning, there are many forms of grief. There are many things that cause our grief. It's also noteworthy that just because this individual made observation, it did not assess if that's what's supposed to happen, if that's what's right and good. And it did not make any correlation to, is this how God has designed us to grieve? It was simply an observation. So take that in mind this morning as we look to God's Word. We're looking to be informed by God's Word rather than secular psychology. It's how are we to grieve? How are we to respond to the sufferings that we endure? And so first, if you're on your handout, that was all a form of introduction, but we are on the reality of grief. There's part two here in your handout. So if we made a big circle, which we're not going to do, but if we put ourselves in a large circle this morning and went around and asked about the various ways that we have been grieved, you can probably conclude that we are not all going to share the same story. We don't all have the same experiences. Nor did we have the same cause of grief in all the different ways that we have suffered. That grief comes to us as a result of a fallen world. And those troubles of a fallen world come in different ways. For example, turn your Bibles to Psalm 6. The sixth psalm. We'll start with this this morning, that grief can come from our enemies or from the sin of others. We can be grieved from those who sin against us. Psalm Psalm 6 and verse 7. We read here the words of David. He says, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Now, I'm going to jump out and assume that each one of us here have been wronged by somebody else at some point in our life, and some of us have been heinously wronged by someone else. The sin of others and those we would even call our enemies or our foes bring grief to our lives. There is nothing in the fact that somebody else sins against you that says you should not feel the effect of that. Grief is just the response. It is the emotion of somebody in this case who would sin against you. Grief also can come from the waywardness of a child. Those of you who are here and have raised your children and now have Older children that have gone wayward from the Lord. That, too, can cause grief. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. there's a proverb of Solomon. It says, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is sorrow to his mother. Now, I've had opportunity to spend time with some of you who are grieving the waywardness of their child. That is a real emotion. It is grief as we see our children that we desire to glorify God, to be loved by God and saved by God and to worship God and we see them chasing after things that are are of destruction. It's a form of grief. Now, you won't be shocked by this, but believers, those who are in Christ Jesus, can also grieve one another by acting selfishly. So even in Christ, we can grieve one another. In Romans chapter 14, talking about our liberties that are in Christ, our freedoms, that we can take on that freedom and hold that freedom to the detriment of somebody else. Speaking of food, Romans 14, 15, Paul writes, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, but what you eat, by what you eat, do not destroy the one from whom Christ died. What does that mean? It means this that each of us should obey our conscience when it comes to Christian liberties. God has given us a conscience. And yet, in Christ, we can come together and tell one another, oh, don't worry about it, you're able to do this. All things are lawful. All things are okay for the Christian. And in so doing, we can grieve one another. We can damage and affect the conscience of one another. The Bible speaks of it as sinning against their conscience. So grief comes to us by those in the world that would sin against us. Grief comes to us of a child whom we love that goes wayward. Grief comes to us even in the body of Christ as we would grieve one another by acting selfishly. Grief also comes to us as a loss of a relationship. Now, you can take a loss of a relationship and define it however you want. It could be a loss of a friendship. It could be a loss Of even a closer relationship which means in a family between father and son mother and child between husband and wife the loss of a relationship we see this grief with the affection for Paul the Apostle who spent years ministering in Ephesus that when he goes back there and calls the elders of the church and tells them he's going away and he's never going to see them again this is in Acts chapter 20 There's a great affection for him. Paul has ministered to them for years, poured into them, cared for them, loved them. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 37 and 38, we read, And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, in this case, it was not only the loss of a relationship, but it would turn out to be the death of a loved one. But what they grieved was just the loss of that immediate relationship. And I would say many of us can attest to what that feels like. Could have been a best friend that turned on you. Could have been a a loved one in your family that departed. And the response was grief, sorrow, suffering. One other example we'll see from Scripture, and we're going to talk a lot more of it this morning, is grief over the death of a loved one. I'm going to use an example that may not be the first one on your mind this morning, but we'll go into a lot more this morning. But Stephen, everyone, Stephen was stoned. Stephen proclaiming the gospel in Acts chapter 8. All these devout men, after he gets killed in Acts chapter 8, they come and they bury him, and it says there was great lamentation over him. Godly men crying over the death of Stephen. Now, in here this morning, loss of life is something that brings all of us grief. Loss of a a dear loved one, one who we have cared for, brings great grief to our soul. We're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at that grief, that type of suffering, the loss of a, a loved one. But just going through this list of where grief comes from, the different types of suffering that bring us grief, I do want to talk about this one before we move on and really open up the idea of the death of a loved one. We can grieve over sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 tells us, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. As a believer in Christ who is sealed with the Spirit of God, when we choose to yield and submit to our flesh instead of the Spirit, it grieves us. Now at first, we are enticed by it. That's why we choose sin, because that's what our appetite was looking for. But then, as you'll read through the Psalms, you'll see David crying out that his his bed was full of tears at night, his bones felt broken within him because of the grief of his sin. That when we see sin for what it is, rebellion against a holy and loving God, it breaks us. There's another type of grief that we just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It is a worldly grief. It is a sorrow because of, one, maybe we got caught and we feel bad that we got caught in that sin. Or maybe just the sorrow is that we saw that it affected somebody else and we feel bad that that sin has affected somebody else. But godly grief, is when we realize we've sinned against a holy God. That we've sinned against a God who loves us and cares for us and gave his only son for us. But grief over sin is a real thing. Draws real emotion out of us. So this morning I told you we're going to spend time looking at specifically the response of the death of of a loved one. So Point number three this morning in your outline, biblical responses to grief, we are specifically looking this morning, we will look at other responses to grief in future weeks, but this morning, the death of a loved one. Every time we see death mentioned in the Bible, I shouldn't say every time, frequently when we see death mentioned in the Bible, it relates to the experience of the bereaved. These are the people who always respond, we see in the text, immediately and outwardly, without reserve, with emotion. We read often that there is weeping, that there is great sorrow. And we see this from the very early on stages of Scripture. If you would turn all the way to the first book in your Bible to Genesis... Genesis chapter 23, speaking of when Sarah died. Genesis chapter 23, there in verse 2 we read, And Sarah died at Kiriat Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. The Bible doesn't give any excuse for this response. It doesn't give any justification. It says it happens. Weeping comes forth in grief. Now, before I continue, I have already heard from many people, and everybody's got this idea of how they think they're supposed to grieve. Like, I don't think I grieve well, is a statement some might say. Some might say, I think I grieve too well. Some might say I'm a master of grief, and some say I'm a rookie of it, and I want to be informed of how to grieve. What we need to understand is this is a response to what is going on around us. There is not a formula of grief. If you're here this morning, you're saying, I, I want to know how to grief, like, like, how do I get tears to roll from my eyes? Like, my my eyes are dry, and they, they never water. There's nothing in Scripture that prescribes that's supposed to happen. What we see is what happens to others. This is how they have grieved. And so if you're coming and you're going, I really want the formula of how to grieve, we're not going to get a formula, but we're going to let the Scripture shape our seasons of grief. And we'll see that as we move on here this morning. But what we see immediately is Abraham weeps. It is an outward. It was immediate. It's without reserve. We also see in chapter 37, Jacob mourns when he thinks Joseph is dead. He's thinking he is dead, and we see in chapter 37, starting in verse 34. Read Genesis chapter 37, verse 34. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Again, a natural outward flow of grief. We see it in weeping. We'll see this again Genesis 50. Keep going through Genesis with me. at the death of Jacob in Genesis 50. Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. And if you keep reading there in verse 3 at the end, it says, And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Seventy days of mourning over Jacob. I think it's interesting that there was a prescribed time that they mourned over him. Here we see it was seventy days, a prescribed time. And so what we will see this morning and what we learn from Ecclesiastes is there is a season and a time for everything, which includes sorrow, which includes our weeping. In Ecclesiastes, if you're note-taking, it's Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Verse 1 says, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. And verse 4 specifically says, a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn, and a time to dance. That there are seasons in life. And so I want to dive a little deeper into what do these seasons of grief look like biblically? Now, by no means am I saying that all our emotion is going to be bound and kept just by being informed of what we see in Scripture. Emotion is raw. It's a reaction to the grief that comes to us through these various forms that we saw before but specifically here speaking about the death of a loved one there is a time for mourning we see this in scripture as Israel's leaders died we saw the people respond in a time of mourning for Aaron we see when Aaron died in numbers chapter 20 numbers chapter 20 verse 29 We read this, And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. Interesting. Uh, a prescribed season of sorrow, an intentional season of grieving. Not only do we see that in Aaron, when Aaron died, but we also see it when Moses died. If you would turn to Deuteronomy 34. Deuteronomy chapter 34, very last chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 8. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Again, just like it was for Aaron, we see the same practice for Moses, that there was a season, a defined season where there would be the expression of sorrow. Now, I said before about those who would say, I don't know how to grieve. What does it mean to not know how to grieve? Or is it not given to a season of grief? As we see here, there is a defined season that was given to Israel to grieve, which meant it was a time that was intentional. It was a time that was purposeful. It was a time to mourn. So, when we speak of not knowing how to grieve, understand this biblically, there is a time for mourning, it is a time committed to grieve the losses of life, all the various losses we would see from Aaron and Moses and the passing of these leaders in Israel that there was this custom then of this 30 days of weeping and mourning. We we see a very similar custom as we flip over to the New Testament. Uh, Specifically, we will see some examples in when Lazarus dies in John chapter 11. And understanding that the custom And the culture at the time helps us to understand what was going on with Mary and Martha as they were weeping for the loss of of Lazarus. So John chapter 11, you can be turned there, I'll reference it here shortly. But digging into the Jewish custom and looking even in New Testament times, the first seven days after a death in a Jewish family, the nearest relatives of the deceased would remain at home. They would grieve together, and they would receive the condolences of extended family and friends. But the immediate family stayed at home for seven days. Which means they're not going to work, they're not trying to go through life like it normally was going, they stopped and they grieved. They grieved the loss of the relative. We see this as you turn to John chapter 11, In John chapter 11, this is, again, has to do with the death of Lazarus. In verse 19, you'll read that many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. We know this is the first week. This is when he has just passed because we know eventually he'd been in the tomb for four days already. And so here people are coming to their place they are staying put. The custom was seven days they would stay there and grieve. Other people were welcome to come visit them, to give their condolences, but they were committed to a week of grieving. And so during that time, the only thing, according to the custom, that they were allowed to leave the home for was to go to the tomb, to go visit the tomb and so we see that in this context here, if you would go down to verse 31, this is why they assumed that Mary had gone where she had gone to see Jesus, but they assumed she had gone to the tomb. John 11:31. 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So in context, and according to their custom, seven days was them in their home. The only time they would leave would be to go grieve at the tomb. Otherwise, they stayed home and they grieved. So what happens after seven days? Well, after seven days of intense grieving, a time given over to to mourning, a season of mourning, it was followed by a 30-day period. And in that 30-day period, there was less acute mourning because it was during that time that this immediate family that lost a loved one, they weren't supposed to attend like social gatherings, Um, they weren't to leave town, they weren't to go on vacation, but they could start integrating back into their normal life. But they're not partying during that time. They're not just going and enjoying the things of the day, but there's an extension. So seven days, intense, intentional grieving. An extension of a 30 day total window where they just continued in an attitude of mourning, but started going back to their daily routine. But nothing of the the fun life of going after and doing the things that they would have done before to enjoy the things around them, but starting getting acclimated back to life working through the grief. And here's the interesting thing about the custom of the day. After 30 days, almost all aspects of normal life resumed, which is interesting because basically that's what we see in the very beginning when Aaron and Moses died. That's what we see the people doing is 30 days of this active mourning, this season of mourning. And then we see it in the New Testament, in the custom of the Jews, was seven days of intentional, purposeful grieving. It is a defined period for them. And it's a prescribed season of sorrow. Now, before you say, well, Robert, are you saying that's how it should be for us? I am not prescribing that to you. I'm saying as we look to Scripture and we see how the people of God had responded... And we saw the culture at the time. It was a culture that defined seasons of grief. I would venture to say that we don't have that in our culture today, that we have defined intentional seasons of grief for them. They knew seven days. We shut down everything for seven days. We are going to cry uncontrollably. We're going to grieve. We're going to miss the person that we've lost. We're going to tell stories. And then after those seven days, we're going to start going outside a little bit, start getting acclimated back into the world again, but we're still grieving. We're not going to go enjoy all that this life has, but we're going to spend 30 days getting used to life again and life in the absence of that person. And then after that prescribed season of sorrow, those 30 days, it was we're going back to life as it was. Now, that might sound pretty cold to some of us, or it might sound great to some of us to have a, a prescribed season of sorrow, to, to know what it looks like to walk through grief. My encouragement to you this morning would know, is to know this there is a season for grieving throughout scripture. We have seen those who respond in grief. It is not for us to think this, that for a Christian to grieve means that we are weak in the faith. That is not an accurate statement to think that somehow we need to muster the courage and the strength to not weep the loss in our lives is not a biblical mandate. And yet we could think that. Because of a high view of God and because of a high knowledge and a, and a strong theology that we know God is in control, that somehow I would feel guilty to weep is not in God's plan. God's plan is that He has given us emotion to grieve to grieve the things that would come at us from a fallen world. And yet we see here that to define that, to define a season of sorrow has helped those from cover to cover in this book, that they would have a defined season of what it's like to give themselves over to weeping, to sorrow, and that that would be a season in their life. Some of us this morning know that in, in great grief. We go through seasons and yet some of us will continue to go in that season and we don't know how to ever get out of that season and we don't know if we ever should get out of that season. We get lost in the grief. We begin to grieve over grieving and the focus just becomes our grief. As we will see over the coming days, God works in our grief. God lets us have seasons of grief. I'll tell you this, when the Bible says, count it all joy, I've never once clicked my heels in the air and said, woohoo, suffering. But as we'll see in coming weeks, what God does in those seasons of grief, though it does not feel good while we're in it, God works in it for his glory and for our good. So the Bible is clear. There are seasons for sorrow, seasons for weeping. And so may what we just looked at this morning, looking at the Old Testament to the New Testament, shape even in our own minds what it's like to give ourselves over to a season of grief. Would you turn to Psalm 102 with me this morning? As I encouraged you last week, I'll encourage you again if currently you find yourself in this season of sorrow, may you find the Psalms to be your friend. May you find comfort and rest and strength and joy from the Psalms as you see real people going to a real God in the midst of their real sorrow. Psalm 102, just reading the very beginning of approaching the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Church, would you pray with me? Father, that is our prayer this morning as we come before you. God, we ask that you would hear our prayer, that you would let our cries come to you, O God. God, that we know that you would not hide your face from us in the day of our distress, but there are times that it does feel that way. So God, we ask that you would incline your ear to us and that you would answer speedily in the day when we call. Father, we thank you that you are our strong tower, you are our refuge, you are our rock. Father, though there are many things in this world that we will never have answers to, God, we thank you that you have given us the gift of faith and have called us to trust. Father, I pray that through looking at your word this morning, Lord, you would help us to frame our our seasons of, of grief, our seasons of sorrow. Father, that we would have both the freedom to grieve, To know that it is biblical to grieve. Lord, to guard ourselves from being given over to grief. Father, would you continue to strengthen us and guard us. We pray, oh God, in the distress that we go through, that in the midst of it, though we don't feel like you are near, oh God, would you be ever near to us. God, would you continue to comfort us in every affliction. And may you receive all honor and glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. If I